Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 351st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a great first-generation American whose lifetime of public service has helped to shape television and America at large over the last 60-plus years. He's the Zelig or Forrest Gump of American politics and culture, having been present for and often shaped key moments and developments in our history. He served in the Army during World War II. He was a clerk for the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court during the beginning stages of Brown v. Board of Education. He was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission during the Kennedy administration. At just 34, the second youngest person ever appointed to that position. And through his work there, paved the way for PBS, which he would later chair, and indirectly for GPS, cell phones, and personal computers. Years later, he was instrumental in the creation of Sesame Street. He was chairman of the board at the not-for-profit think tank The Rand Corporation when Rand employee Daniel Ellsberg released the Pentagon Papers. Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson, later to become Michelle Obama, met while working at his Chicago law firm, Sidley Austin LLP. He has played some role in every televised presidential and vice presidential debate in American history right through those that are about to pit Donald Trump and Joe Biden against each other, and the list goes on. But at the end of the day, he is most closely associated with an address that he gave as FCC chair before the National Association of Broadcasters on May 9th, 1961, which is remembered to this day as the Vast Wasteland speech. The author or co-author of five books, including most recently, 2008's Inside the Presidential Debates, Their Improbable Past and Promising Future, he was honored in 1961 with a special Peabody Award for being, quote, the most courageous, responsible, and energetic federal communications commissioner in years, close quote, and in 2016 with our nation's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, for, quote, his dedication to serving and empowering the public, close quote. Newton N. Minnow. Over the course of our conversation, the 94-year-old and I discussed all of the above, plus much more, including how he wound up on John F. Kennedy's radar in the first place, why he took such a hardline position in the vast wasteland speech, how he believes it did and did not change television, and what he makes of TV and politics today. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Mr. Minow, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's an honor to have you. And I guess to begin with, let me just ask you how you are doing during this very weird time. I bet you didn't think there was anything that you hadn't seen. And then all of a sudden you've got a, a pandemic here. <laughs> well, it is. But uh, at my age, we've survived a lot worse. Believe me. I bet. I bet. Well, um, to that end, let's go back to the very beginning, if we can. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Uh, I was born and raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, my mother and father were both uh, born in Ukraine and came here as very small children uh, and uh, married young. And my dad was in business in Milwaukee. Uh, my mother was... Uh, should have been out of the United States Supreme Court, but the family took her out of school after eighth grade. Uh, but the family did well, and we grew up. My childhood was 
dominated by the Depression, but also the beginnings of World War II. In which you ended up serving. Uh, I wonder if you can just share a little bit about it. I know you were in the U.S. Army from 44 to 46, but not, you know, when people usually they, they talk about, oh, the European theater, the Pacific theater, you were kind of in a unique, not not unique, obviously, but a, a unusual situation during the war, right? Well, it was. Um, I was uh, trained uh, first at the University of Michigan in engineering and then had infantry training and got on the ship from Los Angeles to go across the Pacific and discovered for the first time I was going to the China-Burma-India theater, and I ended up in India, and my unit, I'm very proud of it, the 835th Signal Service Battalion, built the first telephone line connecting India and China. And isn't that just kind of poetic that, you know, who would have ever imagined that later on communications would be your focus? So it just, I guess it's fate. (laughs) It was fate, and uh, looking back at it, It was a very good experience because it taught me a lot. When I came home, I went to college and law school. Yes. And I want to ask you about that. I mean, you first person in your family to go to college, valedictorian at Northwestern for undergrad, and then uh, editor-in-chief at the Law Review for law school. It's just an amazing, very accomplished education period for you. But then you, uh, I know you come out and for maybe a brief period, you were at a law firm, but then can you just share the truly prestigious opportunity that came about for you uh, shortly thereafter? Well, at that time, the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court was Fred Vinson. He had been appointed uh, by President Truman, and he customarily chose his law clerks from Northwestern Law School. And I was fortunate to be recommended by Northwestern, and I was offered the job as one of his law clerks in uh, 1951. Uh, And uh, my wife and I uh, moved to Washington, where we undertook that job. And I, one of our fellow law clerks was a guy named Rehnquist, who later became <laughs> the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court himself. And another was one of my closest friends, Agner Mikva, who became a congressman. And the other was a person who became my law partner, and still is to this day, Howard Trinans. Amazing. And, and you were there at a very... I think it would probably always be an interesting time, but I think your time was particularly interesting. Can you share a little bit about the most interesting cases that you witnessed or you know were a part of while there? Well, the one, of course, that got the most attention was the seizure of the steel industry by President Truman. Uh, the Korean conflict was going on, and President Truman thought it was wartime. Presidents customarily seized businesses during wartime, and, but it was challenged and it turned out that the Supreme Court, by a six to three vote, said the president was wrong. The other important case that was pending but not decided when I was there, of course, was the Brown case, which desegregated the public schools. And by a strange sort of fate, one of my daughters, years later, 
became a law clerk at the Supreme Court for Justice Thurgood Marshall, who was the one who argued the Brown case. And um, so different generations of our family uh, saw history. Amazing, amazing. And I, I will just prompt you for one more Justice Vinson-related question, and that has to do with Major League Baseball. I learned this watching a uh, very well-done documentary about you, that you were sort of a sounding board for a major moment, a major potential turning point in his life. <laughs> well, the chief had been a semi-pro baseball player before he went into politics, and he was a baseball fanatic. And one day, it was customary for us to drive him home and he was usually uh, very talkative and congenial. This time he was very quiet. And I said, uh, Chief, something bothering you? Something wrong? And he groaned and he said, I was offered the job of baseball commissioner today. $75,000 a year. At that time, the chief was making $25,000. Uh, uh. He says, and you can go to see the ball game every afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> and I and my partner, Howard, Howard Trina, said, Chief Justice, you can't go from being chief of the Supreme Court to being baseball commissioner. He said, I know it, and it's <laughs> killing me. Oh, that's so funny. I guess that it was sometime shortly thereafter, you go back to the law firm that you were a part of before the clerkship, and somewhere along the line there, you cro- I was going to do that. I was going to do that. But then the then governor of Illinois offered a job of his assistant counsel to my partner, who wasn't interested. He told me about it. I applied for it, and I ended up as assistant counsel to Governor Anthony Stevenson. And I arrived at the time of the Democratic Convention in 1952, which nominated him for president of the United States. So that's what you walked into. <laughs> Amazing. And and just if we have any listeners who are not from America or not uh, haven't studied their history, I guess we should note uh, he, of course, was Democratic nominee in 52 and 56, lost both times pretty uh, sizably to Eisenhower and then ran again, but didn't get nominated in 1960. Throughout all those years, you were very close with him. And I wanted to ask you if you could just talk about how you know, how your relationship with him evolved and what the greatest takeaway of that one is, because he's another kind of historical figure who's long, long gone. Well, Adley was a, a true public servant. He grew up in a political family. His um, grandfather had been the vice president of the United States. Adley was mostly interested in international affairs. He was one of the founders of the United Nations. Uh, he had served uh, in, the, in Washington during you know, World War II, and he did not want to run for president in 52. He admired President uh, General then General Eisenhower, thought that the country would be in good hands, but he was drafted and he felt he should answer that call. Uh, it was a hopeless race, both in 52 and 56. But I think he set very high standards. He believed in public service. And many of the things he stood for influenced John F. Kennedy, who led to the Kennedy administration uh, in 1960. And is it true that 
I believe in 56, by which point you knew him, you knew Stevenson a lot better. You were one of the people saying you should actually go with Kennedy as your vice presidential pick. Very much so. Uh, Abbott had been divorced, and at that time in American history, being divorced was not a uh, attractive thing for a politician. Kennedy was Catholic. Kennedy would have appealed to a different uh, generation. He was younger. So I pushed without success for Adley to pick Jack Kennedy as his running mate. After the election, I was at a small dinner in Washington when Adley was speaking at the Gridiron Dinner. And Jack, it was the first time I uh, had a real chance to talk to Jack and Jackie Kennedy. And Jack Kennedy came over to me and he said, uh, thanks for trying to get the vice presidential nomination for me. And I said, we called him Jack at that time. I said, Jack, I said, you're lucky you didn't get it. I said, but I said, you know, if you're still interested in four years, maybe you could get the vice presidential nomination then. He looked at me, with deep eyes, and he said, vice president? <laughs> I said, vice president? He said, I'm going to run for president. <laughs> and I said, you're 39 years old. Are you nuts? But he met it, and he had made up his mind he was going to run for president in 1960. Now, your connection to the Kennedy family actually preceded, I think, that. Can you just share? There, there was a Chicago wing of the family, right? And, uh, and just how did you come into the same orbit as them? Well, President Kennedy's sister Eunice, who married Sarge Shriver, lived in Chicago. Sarge managed the uh, family holding, the merchandise mart. And I got to know them uh, through the Stevenson campaign, and uh, we became very good friends. And then in 56, after Jack didn't get the vice presidential nomination, the family wanted somebody in the family to learn about national campaigns. So they asked if Bob Kennedy uh, could become a member of the staff. And of course, he was welcomed. And since Bob and I were almost exactly the same age, uh, we became friends. And on the campaign staff uh, tra travels, uh, sometimes we roomed together and we became friends. So there was, ex I, I looked it up because I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Really, there's less than three months or, or just just three months difference, basically, between you and, and Bobby Kennedy. Uh, and I understand that, there was one particularly important conversation that you two had in Springfield, which is what probably laid the groundwork for years later, you joining the Kennedy administration in the position that you did. Can you talk about what happened in Springfield with you and, and Bobby Kennedy? Adlai Stevenson was traveling on the campaign trail and reached Springfield, Illinois. Bob and I got off the plane and Bob said, um, you know, he said, you and I have heard this speech 5,000 times. <laughs> How far are we from Abraham Lincoln's house? I said, we can make it back and forth, maybe at the most 10 minutes each way. He said, do you think we could get back and forth, see the house in time for the plane to leave? I said, if we leave right now, let's go. <laughs> so the two of us went to Abraham Lincoln's house. And on the way back, Bob said to me something that really hit me deeply. 
he said, you know, we, we each have children the same age. He had many more than I did, but we had <laughs> children the same age. And he said, uh, when I grew up, there were three great influences on a child. The home, school, the church. He said, in my home, I now see there's a fourth great influence, and it's the television set. My kids are bewitched by television. They're watching television all the time. He said, don't you think something could be done to make it better? And I said, well, there's no question. I said, this is the greatest gift, the greatest educational gift ever created. Later, uh, I was a lawyer for the Encyclopedia Britannica Film Company, which made educational films. And I would occasionally send some to Bob for his kids, and they would watch them on 16-millimeter film in the basement at Hickory Hill on Saturday morning. And um, they knew how interested I was. And when Jack was elected, uh, they asked if I would like to go into the government. And I, and I indicated there was only one job and only one job that would interest me. And that was chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. So I'm going to ask you why that was the job that appealed to you in a moment. But I, I first want to kind of establish where you stood in the 1960 campaign for the nomination, because you were in a tough spot. You were now friends with the Kennedys, but still working for Stevenson, right? Well, I had to be loyal to Stevenson. He was my senior law partner, my friend. But I kept urging him to to get out and, and support Kennedy. In fact, Kennedy wanted him to nominate him and badly refused, which I thought was a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Why do you think he did that? Uh, I think Mrs. Roosevelt particularly and others kept urging him to stay in the race, which looking, I knew was a mistake, but, but uh, I was, uh, my view did not prevail, put it that way. But I mean, why do you think he refused to nominate Kennedy when that time came? I think, I think he still felt that there were people who wanted him to stay, to stay in it. And uh, I think he clearly, in my view, was a mistake. It must it must be tough to go for it three times and come up short. I can understand feeling a little bit uh, crushed. I, I think it, once you run for an office, I think it's it's an injection in your bloodstream. Yeah. <laughs> you ever get it out. Right. Well, it's interesting to me, I, if I have my information correct, that really Stevenson in some ways actually did help to pave the way for Kennedy's election in the sense that Stevenson had sort of, I think, maybe been the original proponent of televised debates, which Kennedy himself felt he would not have, I believe he felt that he would not have beaten Nixon had he not had the uh, presidential debate success that he did against Nixon. So since debates would again come up, presidential debates would again be a big part of your life for years to come. Can you just talk about starting with Stevenson and, and then through the Kennedy-Nixon debates, how that all came together. What happened is that the, the law, the Federal Communications Act, requires that broadcasters provide equal time to candidates. If the broadcaster gives time to one candidate, sells time to one candidate, it must treat the other candidate exactly the same way. That meant that even if a person holding political office, there was, there was a specific case, 
the mayor of the city of Chicago, Mayor Richard J. Daley, went to the airport to greet a visiting Queen of England. It was covered on the news program that night. Mayor Daley's opponent claimed equal time on television, and the FCC said, you're right, and they provided equal time for Mayor Daley at the airport. Later, the broadcasters persuaded Congress to exempt news programs, but they didn't provide debates as a news program. As a result, the broadcasters couldn't put on a debate without some exemption from the Equal Time Law. Adley was invited to testify at a Senate hearing about this as a prior candidate for president. I, as the junior lawyer in the office, was told to draft his testimony, which I did. The result of it was that Adley proposed something like this. Congress said, okay, we will one time only, only for the presidential race in 1960, we will exempt the broadcasters from the equal time law. As a result, the broadcasters organized the Kennedy-Nixon debates in 1960. By a strange coincidence, my college roommate, Sandy Van Oker, was what the NBC correspondent who was one of the questioners uh, in, in the debate. It really is amazing. Well, I think uh, uh, not just me, President Kennedy believed and told me later he would not have been elected but for the debates. I believe that was true. Now, for people who weren't alive to to watch them and haven't gone back and watched them on YouTube or something, what what was so important? What, how, why did Kennedy come across so much better than Nixon in those debates? It was not anything on the issues. The issues were not that decisive. What it was was his Kennedy's presence, his demeanor, his personality, his character. Uh, Nixon looked bad. I don't know if he was feeling well. He was stiff. Kennedy had a smile. And, and you could see, you could like Kennedy, and you could see that he was a grown-up and was ready to be president. The country didn't know him at that point. I think that was what was decisive. I think, and I don't know if this is just lore, but I think I had heard at one point, maybe Nixon himself said that even his mother called him after the debate to say he, to check if he was feeling okay. He didn't look so good with all the flop sweat and all of that, right? <laughs> years, years later, Nixon was in Chicago campaigning for in the 64 election, and he was in the same studio, it's a CBS studio in Chicago, and the station wanted a Democrat to go on with him and invited me. So I walked and I realized we were in the same studio of the Nixon-Kennedy debate. <laughs> so I said to, we were seated, and I said to uh, Vice President Nixon, I said, do you remember this studio? And he grabbed my arm. I still feel it. He said, do you think I could ever forget? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, okay, so let's go back to end of 1960, beginning of 1961. Kennedy gets elected very narrowly gets in there and you are as you say approached about joining the administration you're just 34 years old which 
I am the same age right now, and I can't imagine joining any presidential administration in a in a major role. That's a that's a, and nor having children. I, I, how many kids did you have at that point? Three, three, three daughters. Three already. Okay, so all your children were uh, were at that point already there. So why though? I guess it, it seems like to to an outsider, it would be exciting to be asked to to join the administration in in any capacity. You had, however, the consideration I know of you got to pay the bills. Um, so that, I guess, was one reason why you you may have been resistant. But why was the FCC chairmanship a position that would make you, you know, reconsider about joining the administration? There was one reason. Uh, I felt that television, in my view, the greatest invention of our time was being wasted that we were not taking advantage of the opportunity to not only entertain, but also to inform, to educate, to inspire. Those are the words of Edward R. Murrow, that we were not doing that. And um, even though I was making, I was doing, I was a partner in a great law firm. I was doing very well, I was very happy, but I felt I had to do this. And so we packed up and went to Washington for, for that for that reason. I also admired President Kennedy and would do anything in the world to, to help him be a successful president. So you were appointed on January 9th, 61, second youngest person, I guess, at that point ever to hold the post. I can't imagine who I, I haven't found who was younger, but I, I uh, how much younger can you go and have that job? But I guess it was sort of the theme of the the Kennedy administration and this whole new frontier idea, like bring in the, the young best and, and brightest, right? That was the, that was the general philosophy of, of appointments, wasn't it? Well, I think we also had a different attitude about government at that time, particularly those of us who had been in the military in World War II. JFK once described himself as an idealist without illusions, an idealist without illusions. And I think our generation felt a sense of obligation mm -hmm. for public service and that it was our duty and that government and politics were an honorable profession. Unfortunately, too many of us do not feel that way today. Right. And I guess that was most famously hammered home in the inaugural address, right? That was uh, where most people would know that was a, a Kennedy priority from. So you go to work on... March 2nd, 61. And I just want to kind of set the scene if I can, because it may be hard for people to imagine. But at that point, I guess TV really had barely been around for, you know, a little more than a decade, right? Uh, late 40s, maybe. And there were, as as I can determine, two and a half channels at that point, in a sense, where CBS, NBC, and then in half the country, ABC. So it's a whole different landscape at that point. And I guess... I wonder if you can just share what role the FCC had played prior to your arrival and just how it had operated before you came came to be a part of it. Because I know there were there were some bumpy times there before you got there. The late 50s were a very bad period for the FCC and a very bad period for the broadcaster industry. There, in the industry, there have been scandals of payola in radio. There have been quiz show scandals where the 
contestants have been uh, bribed with the right answers. At the FCC, there have been bribery scandals and influence scandals. President Eisenhower had been forced to fire the then chairman of the FCC. The place, the place was a mess of the, both the government and the industry. And you could only go up. <laughs> and I was determined to change things and to tell the broadcasters that there was a new sheriff in town, that they had been given free, no, not a penny in cost, a license to use the public property, the airways that belonged to the public, for, could use it for nothing to make money, which they were doing very handily, without providing sufficient public service, particularly for children who I felt were being badly shortchanged by the broadcasters. And there was no educational television, which we now call public television. There was no pay television. There was no cable television. I felt that we had to change things in a very fundamental way. Now, one thing I've always wondered, and I remember learning about your speech in college and reading about it for, for years just in various accounts, but I've never been totally clear about was was this a priority of President Kennedy to go in there and and shake some sense into these broadcasters or was he sort of not necessarily involved and it was your personal priority that this be done? I had no instructions of any kind from the president. When I wanted to leave, this is years later, I never forgot what the president said to me. Uh, I walked in the office and said, you're the only person I brought her and never asked to, to see me. He said, the only time I've seen you is socially. <laughs> and, and that was true, except for one thing, and that was on the development of the communication satellite. Which I do want to come back to in a sec. But first, you were not in any way worried that taking such a aggressive position as the vast wasteland speech that we're going to talk about, that that might actually not that might be more aggressive than President Kennedy might want to be with these broadcasters who he would also need in his uh, in his own interests as well? I, I thought he would agree with me. Um, that night, I have two phone calls. And one phone call was the White House operator. So the White House calling. I thought, oh, here it comes. <laughs> and instead, it was the president's father, Ambassador Kennedy. Mm. And he called me, he said, he, I have met him. He said, Newt, he said, that was the best speech since my son's inaugural address. <laughs> you keep it up. If anybody gives you any trouble, you call me. Goodbye. <laughs> well, that's good to have uh, him on your side. <laughs> who was the other call? The other, other call was from Edward R. Merle, oh. who was a great CBS uh, broadcaster, who said to me, you stole my speech. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, don't you know the speech I gave in your town in Chicago two years ago? And I didn't know the speech. And he basically was saying the same things I did. Wow. Well, one last thing before I ask you about the content of that speech. You've always emphasized that the, you know, even though you are appointed FCC chair by President Kennedy, you the, the FCC and the FCC chair are primarily answerable to Congress. And I think that was hammered home 
during a meeting with Speaker, then Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn. But I just can you explain, you know, who does the FCC work for? The FCC is not MOT, part of the executive branch of government. It's a strange duck. The president makes the appointments on a bipartisan basis. It's required that the agency have uh, both parties represented. They're confirmed by the Senate. And the Congress regards the FCC as part of the legislative branch. It really, it's sort of in between both. Speaker Rayburn, whom I have met before I took the job, uh, when I went up to see him, uh, he put his arm around me. And he said, you and I are getting along just fine. If you remember one thing, I said, what's that, sir? He said, you work for me. Well, he meant it. Yeah. We were in between the, the Congress and the executive branch. And I, and I suppose that that is why such a, a big part of your job and, and so much of what made you effective at it was that you had to navigate a, the sort of Congress as more than more than the president. Uh, you had to kind of interact with with, you know, lobbying Congress and getting them to back your agenda. Right. Furthermore, every broadcaster was a congressman's most important constituent. <laughs> Every elected member of Congress was particularly concerned that his local broadcaster was happy with him. <laughs> so it is in this climate that on May 9th, 1961, you walk into a room uh, to address the National Association of Broadcasters. This is more than 2,000 broadcasters, as I understand it, uh, or, or people associated with them barely two months into the job, but I guess ahead of that, how did you go about, this was going to be your first time addressing your, I guess, in a sense, constituents. I don't know if that's the right word here, but uh, first time doing that. How did you decide to approach the composition of that speech? Um, I believe you, and you're very open about this, the, the draft process, it's kind of interesting because some of the verbiage that's most associated with this speech has, has a, a funny origin story. Uh, well, before I, I'll answer that, but before I do, the day before the speech, President Kennedy spoke to the broadcast, and he invited me to go with him to the broadcaster's convention, taking with him the very first American astronaut. And we drove up in the car together, President Kennedy, Vice President Johnson, the uh, uh, the first astronaut, uh, Alan Shepard and his wife, and me. With the vice president and me on our, the jump seats in the limousine. And President Kennedy had asked, asked me when we got to the White House, he, he said, come with me, I want to change my shirt. And he took me up to the senior shirt. He said, what do you think I should say to the broadcasters? And I said, you should tell them what a great public service they provided by covering the space shot because they enabled everybody in America to see and to hear a history. Whereas in Russia, a closed society, nobody knows. Right. What the, the president got up without a note and gave a perfect speech. <laughs> I love saying that. Then it's my turn the next day, which gets to my speech. 
And my speech was very deliberately, I had the help of a gifted writer, John Bartlow Martin, who had been a speechwriter for Stevenson and for Kennedy. And he volunteered to do a draft for me. And I used a great deal of it, not all of it. And he used one phrase, he called the broadcasting the vast wasteland of junk. <laughs> I crossed off of junk, but kept the words vast wasteland, never thinking that they had any significance. The way the, the media reacted to it, it was known as the vast wasteland speech. <laughs> now, he had drafted the speech based on, you know, you had told him, this is my general sentiment. I want to communicate that, that there's not a lot out there for, I mean, actually, maybe if it's all right with you, I'm going to quote two key passages just for our listeners. And then I'll, I'll ask you about that. So it seemed to me that your main thesis was quote, when television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, sadism, murder, Western bad men, Western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons and endlessly commercials, many screaming, cajoling and offending. And most of all, boredom. True, you'll see a few things you will enjoy, but they will be very, very few. And if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it. Is there one person in this room who claims that broadcasting can't do better? Close quote. And then I think the other key passage is implying that you might not renew their licenses if they didn't get their act together. So, quote, renewal will not be pro forma in the future. Close quote. So those words came about from your general mission going into writing or and working with the with your your gentleman that was drafting it. Um that you want to go in there very aggressively and and kind of scare them into getting their act together? Is that fair to say? I would not scare them, but remind them, remind them that they had made a promise when they got that license that they were going to serve the public, not the private interest. And that this was a reminder. And, and, and I, I had said to them at the beginning of the speech, I know all about the quiz show scandals and the payola. Let's close the book on that. I'm not going to, as far as I'm concerned, that, that chapter is finished. We're, we're going to start off afresh. I could have done it the other way and said, you guys have been so bad, you're, you're, you're going to be in the doghouse. Right. I felt I was saying to them, here's your chance to clean your own act up. In retrospect, there's one thing I wish I would have done but I didn't have enough support to do it. At that time, the broadcasters themselves had a limit on commercials. They had a limit of six minutes an hour for commercials. Six minutes an hour. If only, right? Now what do we have? 20 minutes probably. And what I wanted to say was, you guys have got a very sensible limit on commercials. We didn't create it. The government didn't create it. 
mute it. There's one thing wrong with it. You don't enforce it. Now, I'm going to give you a year to enforce it. If you don't, I promise you, we will enforce it for you. So that didn't make it in, but the, the rest... I don't have, have enough votes for that. Right. And did you feel you had enough congressional support to... You, would you have made the, 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 the speech that you did with vast wasteland and threatening the licenses and all of that? Did you first check out that you had congressional support for that? I knew it would be mixed. I knew that there would be uh, some people who would be very offended by it, and I knew there'd be some people who would be for it, but I knew it would be mixed. And in the room, as you're delivering this speech, I don't know if you were able to kind of look up from your notes and read the room in the moment, but if you were able to do that, I wonder what sort of reaction was occurring in the room, and then certainly also in the aftermath of the speech, uh, I'd be curious what feedback you got from the broadcasters. After the speech, I was standing still on the platform. People were coming up and shaking hands. And so one man came up and he said, I didn't like your speech at all. And I said, well, thank you very much, sir. And he left. <laughs> Two minutes later, he came back and he said, thinking about it, he said, that was probably the worst speech I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I said, thank you. And goodbye. He came back the third time, and he said, not only was it terrible, he said, but he said it was really insulting. <laughs> and at that point, the head of the National Association of Broadcasters, Governor Leroy Cull, was standing next to me. He put his arm around me, and he said, don't pay any attention to him. He said, he just repeats everything he hears. <laughs> Well, that is funny. And uh, and then in the in the ensuing days and weeks and months, did you feel that the broadcasters were hostile towards you or were they realizing that they better just play nice? I think most of them were hostile. <laughs> really? Uh, but the public was quite the contrary. The FCC got more supporting letters than in its history as a result of that, and particularly parents of small children, most of all, uh, agreed with me because they wanted the medium to provide something much better. And of course, subsequently, I was involved with the beginnings of Sesame Street, with, and I saw that what I was seeking could actually happen. Just one particular uh person who was not thrilled with your speech, who I want to ask you if you could share the the story. There's a gentleman, Sherwood Schwartz, who created a show called Gilligan's Island, in which a ship sinks and leaves a bunch of people stranded on an island. Why is the ship referred to in the title song and throughout the show known as the SS Minnow, however, with two ends? Well, because a ship sunk. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was a, a open detractor of you and your right. speech? Yeah. Sure. Right. He was a creative guy. I happen to love the show. <laughs> and I later had a wonderful engaging correspondence with, with him. <laughs> uh, and I told him I was very honored. And I later, I, I was given one of the life preservers. 
I, in turn, came to the Chicago History Museum, where it is now. But Sherwood, I, I admire them, and I think it was all in good humor. And I, uh, I, I was honored to have the SS Minnow named after me. <laughs> so the fact that when, when you finished that speech, the vast wasteland speech as we know it now, did you ever imagine that this would follow you for the rest of your life, or was it only because of the headline in the New York Times front page the next day, quote, FCC head bids TV men reform vast wasteland uh, in single quotes uh, was I mean, when you finished that speech, did you think it was just kind of another of of countless speeches you're going to give in your life? Or did you realize that this would this was going to become something that people would treat as historically significant? One of the great speeches in American history, all of the things that it's now described as. I wondered if you even gave it a second thought after you finished it until the headline. I thought it was inside baseball. I thought it was I thought it was going to be uh, listened to within the industry. But I did not think it's 60 years later. Yeah. <laughs> years later that the uh, speech is still being talked about. But I think the reason I've thought a great deal about this. I think the reason is that we're all seeking some sense of idealism, some sense of doing good in the world with the technologies that we have. And I think we want them to, to do more good than they do. I think that's what's on people's mind. Are we wasting, wasting these great gifts? Absolutely. So I I did learn from that uh, documentary that I mentioned earlier that one you you basically right after that speech I guess flew back from where was the speech it was in New York Washington in Washington so where did you flew to Chicago or where did yeah. you go because your daughters were still at my oldest daughter had her uh, some Girl Scout or. or school thing and I wanted didn't want to miss it. So So they had not yet moved to Washington even to join you. Wow. No, so you went to a, a brownie thing the school semester. Wow, okay. Life, yes. yes. And so you were you were a good dad. You went to the Brownies uh meeting that right. night. And I guess uh, you know what what I am most curious about is in your estimation, did the Vast Wasteland speech have the effect in the remaining time that you were at the FCC, which was maybe another two or so years, a little more than that, did it accomplish what you hoped it would accomplish? Was there the effect of promoting, you know, more prominent, were there, were there prominent examples of them, of the broadcasters now providing content that was sort of in the public interest? I would say, yes, there was a great increase in news programming. Uh, the news went from 15 minutes at the network level to a half hour. There were more children's programs created. There were the beginning of a national public television network. We managed to get a station in New York, one in Los Angeles, which didn't exist before, one in Washington. Can you imagine having a country without a public television station in the biggest cities? We um, got uh, cable television, opened the door to that, which was important. Satellite, which turned out to be the, perhaps the most important, 
was developed on our watch. So a lot of things happened. In fact, I have three basic pieces of legislation. All three passed. One night, President Kennedy called me at home, and he said, how in the blank did you do that? <laughs> and I said, I operate on a bipartisan way. My agency is by law bipartisan. I'm known, there's no partisanship in our issues. I get as much help from the Republicans as from the Democrats. And the president said to me, I wish I could do that. And I said, well, you got a different set of issues. I said, uh, there's no reason why a communication satellite program should be Democrat or Republican. Right, right. Uh, uh, there's no reason why a television, the big thing we did was how television sets are manufactured, that they had to receive UHF channel. I said, there's no Democratic or Republican view on it. So I, that's how we stay out of, stay out of uh, partisanship. Well, if I can guess what you would count as those three big accomplishments, maybe or I can prompt you and just if you have a, uh, a little bit to say about these other, you know, because people, they, they see your name probably and the first thing they think about is Vast Wasteland, but there's a lot of things that actually were probably more, even more impactful. And so, as you mentioned, the All Channel Receiver Act, uh, which was passed in 61, I'm going to try to set it up, and you tell me if I get this wrong, but it mandated UHF reception capability for all TV receivers sold in the U.S., which meant that that there now needed to be a UHF tuner in addition to a VHF tuner on all TV sets, which essentially brought down the costs of those. And in some ways, because they there was going to now have to be mass production, brought down the costs and in some ways paved the way for personal computing chips because they also had to be smaller and mass produced. Is that am I understanding that correctly? Yes. In fact, uh, uh, my daughter, Mary, discovered an interview with one of the engineers who developed the transistors, giving us credit for pushing the, the all-channel bill. What the all-channel bill did was to increase the number of television stations in the country, and uh, which was a very important thing, particularly for the growth of public television. Yes. Next thing I would guess would be the Educational Television Facilities Act of 62, where you, I think, call it the best thing I did in government was the was growing public television. And in this case, that act really that's what financed the expansion of those public, you know, television stations in major cities across America. Well, that's right. Pre President Kennedy came to the, uh, Washington from Boston. I came to Washington from Chicago. Each of us came from a community that had a public television station. We didn't realize that was not true in most cities in the United States. And that's when we changed that. I think that's grown to be a very important contributor to uh, a more civilized society. The third thing might pertain to the communication satellites that we were talking about earlier. And and the way that my initial reaction is probably what President Kennedy's was when he saw you joining him at a NASA facility. Maybe if you can take the story from there. Well, President Kennedy invited me to go on a trip to the different uh, uh, space 
uh, program sites. And then he, when I was there, one day he beckoned me over and he said, why are you bugging us so hard about this communication satellite thing? And I said, Mr. President, a communication satellite is more important than sending a man into space. I said, because communication satellites send ideas into space, and ideas last longer than people. And that, of course, in retrospect, as I look back on it uh, years later, uh, that was very prescient because what has happened now is communication satellites has united the world, the globe, so we can see what's happening everywhere uh, as it happens. Uh, it enabled the cable business to go national. It enabled telephone calls to be done so cheaply. Uh, it, it turned out to be a monumental achievement. And uh, we didn't realize it fully at the time, but it is one of those great advances that changes, changes life for all of us. And that was something that Congress passed funding for during your watch? Yes. What we organized was a public-private partnership with the existing communication companies and the NASA, uh, and it worked, out, it worked out very well. So, you know, people tend to idealize, I guess, a person when they're gone. So President Kennedy, uh, a lot of people, you know, we focus on the famous speeches and the greatest accomplishments and all of that. But I mean, he could be wrong, too. And there were a few times where he asked you to do things where you either dissuaded him or refused to do them or whatever. And I just think it's it's it speaks to your Wisdom and maybe also his humanity, if we can just talk about, uh, you know, he wasn't a flawless person in any at all. Uh, these were, I guess, per particularly pertaining to the NBC Nightly News and The Tonight Show, but also during the Cuban Missile Crisis, you you dealt with him on things that or he reached out to you about things he wanted you to do. And you had to figure out whether or not to to act on them. Right. Well, I learned a long time ago, nobody's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the famous great line in my favor. Somebody get hot, yeah. <laughs> in the case of the NBC, what, what had happened was there was a threatened strike in the steel industry. President Kennedy and the Secretary of Labor, Arthur Goldberg, who is my wife's cousin, settled that and will promise that, at least they thought, the president thought there was a promise, that they wouldn't raise, the steel industry would not raise prices. Steel industry then raised prices. And um, President Kennedy called me at home one night. He said, did you see that NBC News tonight with Huntley Brinkley? I said, yes, sir, I did. He said, did you see what they said about me? I said, yes, sir, I did. He says, God damn it, he said, do something about it. Goodbye. <laughs> so I hung up the phone. And I said to my, what am I going to do? And of course, I decided I would do nothing. And in the morning, I called the White House for the president. And I got Kenny O'Donnell, his assistant. And Kenny said, the president is on the phone right now. He said, I know what you're calling about. <laughs> I was with the president when he called you last night. What do you want to tell the president? 
I said, tell the president he's very fortunate that he has a friend at the FCC who knows enough not to pay attention to the president when the president is angry. <laughs> he said, that's it? I said, that's it. So I don't hear anything. A week or so goes by. I don't hear yes or no. And we were at a party at the Indian Embassy. And the president saw me and he beckoned me to come over. And I came over and he put his arm around me. He just said, thank you. <laughs> was and is, was that a similar thing with The Tonight Show later on? Right. And then the Cuban Missile Crisis, what had happened was that the Russians, in addition to uh, putting the missiles into Cuba, in addition to that, they blocked the American Voice of America signals. And the Voice of America was unable to carry the president's message to Cuba. And the White House asked me if I could get... There were, according to the engineers at the Voice of America, there were six commercial American radio stations whose signals reached Cuba. Could we get them to carry the Voice of America? So I said, of course. So I was ignorant. I went to the office. I called in our key staff. I said, how do you do this? They said, it's not hard. They said, we can do it. I said, how do you do it? I'd like to know how. They said, we call AT&T, they patch a line between the transmitters of the Voice of America. We, we know the six stations. We can do that. I call the six stations. We swore them to secrecy. It's a long story. We got them to carry the Voice of America. And I reported that next morning to the White House, to the president and to the committee. And the president looked at me and he said, It worked. We must have had somebody on the ground there, CIA or somebody reporting back. He said, it worked. I said, good. So I left. And I'm halfway out the door, and he says, let's do it every night till this thing is over. Oh, God. <laughs> so we did that. And, of course, when it was all over, the stations called me up. And they said, where do we send the bill? I said, what do you mean the bill? They said, well, we had to cancel all our revenue advertising. Who pays for this? So I called Pierre Salinger, the presser at the White House. He said, we don't have any money for this. I said, would the president invite these guys for lunch and president thank him and have his picture taken and maybe we won't get a bill. So that's what we did. And later, my daughter just showed me this. This is a certificate signed by the president, signed by Edward R. Murrow, and signed by me given to each station in thanks for their service during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That is fantastic. Wow, that is amazing. That was... That, <laughs> you solved a problem that uh, didn't seem to have an easy answer. That's, a, that's I guess, the job, huh? <laughs> well, I was later turned that wasn't even done during World War II uh, using... Uh, but, you know, what had to be done had to be done. And, uh, yeah. I, uh, I, I, you know, just free associating here, I'm thinking that I wonder if one of the effects of the vast wasteland speech, and maybe this, maybe this did not originate with the broadcasters. Maybe it was the idea of, of the, the Kennedys, but that famous tour of the white house by Mrs. Kennedy seems to have been a, a, 
in the public interest, in a sense, a, a valuable educational thing. And that was carried, I know, by, I think, two of the networks at initially and then it re-aired on the third. Just wonder if that was another thing that may have happened because of your nudging the broadcasters. I'm not sure, but I do remember this. President Kennedy called me after the Jackie toured the White House. And the original program, I know, was on CBS. And the president called me. He said, what was the rating? <laughs> that sounds familiar. <laughs> so I called Frank Stanton, who was the head of CBS. And I said, can you tell me what was the rating on that? He said, we don't get the ratings the next day. He said, it'll take a little while. I said, I got to have it today. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I'll call you back. He called me back. He said, I can give you what we call the flash ratings. They're not the, they're not the real ratings, but they're an impression. I said, okay, give me that. So I called the president back. He said, what was it? I said, I don't want to give you a number. I said, I'll just tell you, it was higher than your press conference. <laughs> that Now I imagine... Imagine telling that to the current <laughs> occupant. <laughs> uh, so why in, in June 63 did you decide not only to, to resign from the FCC, but also to not then go and do what many people who leave government do and, uh, and cash in essentially on your service? But you basically went back to the job that you had when you, when you first left for the White House. Well, I had determined that when I took the job, I was not going to use it to uh, go into the industries that we regulated. And I made up my mind I, to, to go back to a job I'd been offered before I went into the government. I took the job also because we were going broke. At that time, the FCC chairman should pay $20,500 a year, which was not going to support our family. And so, and we went back to Chicago. I, I'm glad we did. Uh, and yet at the same time, I felt very badly. I left before President Kennedy was killed. Do you remember where, I'm sure you do remember where you were when you heard that news? Well, I'll never forget it. Of course, we went to the funeral and then it went tragically went to Bob's funeral. Uh, I've still not gotten over what would happen. Robbed our generation. Absolutely. Uh, when you left, one might assume that the broadcasters were doing cartwheels, but I understand that your successor at as chair of the FCC wasn't much easier on them, so you may have set a, a, a good tone there. I'm sure that's true, and I think what we did was reminded the agency, reminded the agency of its role uh, I regard the job that the FCC has as more important than almost any other agency in government. If you want to make a telephone call, if, if, you, if you want to listen to the radio, if you want to watch television, any involvement with any aspect of communications, you're dealing with the FCC. Absolutely. Flash forward uh, maybe five years after you leave the FCC and there's a new FCC chairman Dean Birch under Nixon who's come in as president now and I understand that you and he knew someone in common which really is what led to something that 
my generation and a lot of people owe a lot to, and that is Sesame Street. So can you just explain, this is one of these other, you have so many of these stories that it's just like mind blowing that one person has so many tentacles into different things. Well, this is a wild story you won't believe. Uh, I knew Dean Birch. He had been Goldwater's campaign chairman in the 64 presidential election. He was chairman of the Republican National Committee. He and I were on a bipartisan commission is where we met. Then we go to um, years later, Nixon is elected in 68 and Dean calls me. He's a lawyer in uh, Tucson. And he says, I need some advice. I think I just made a mistake. I said, what? He said, President-elect Nixon asked me to become chairman of the FCC. I said, no. I said, why'd you say no? He said, ah, oh, look, I was a law practitioner, a swimming pool, the kids are in school. I said, you made a terrible mistake. I said, this is one of the great opportunities for public service. Call Nixon back and tell him he'll do it immediately because before he gets somebody else. He takes the job. He's on the job a couple of, a couple of weeks. And he says, Big Shot, you talk me into this. Next time you're in Washington, stop by and we'll talk. I, want, I need some ideas. So I look at my schedule, and I was going to the predecessor of PBS meeting in New York. Went there and heard a young woman named Joan Cooney present a program she's creating called Sesame Street. I was knocked out by it. I took the shuttle to Washington and met with Dean. He said, what do you suggest I do? I said, well, I just saw a young woman present a new thing, which is going to be dynamite. You should help her. And I tell him about Joan Cooney. He said, well, he said what does she look like? So I said, well, she's nice looking. She sort of looked like she's in her 40s. He said, um, the name uh, Gans come up? I said, yeah, her name was Joan Gans Cooney. Gans must be her maiden name. Cooney must be her married name. He says, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, I asked her to marry me when we went to the University of Arizona together. <laughs> Joni Gans, how do I reach her? And he calls her. He said, what can I do to help you? She tells him that she's got foundation money to produce the program, but she needs money to distribute it. And H-E-W, now HHS, has turned her down. And Dean says, if you come to Washington, I'll take you to see Barry Goldwater. He's got HHS budget. I think he can help you. So he takes her to see Goldwater. Goldwater looks over her paperwork. He says, you from Arizona? She says, yes. He says, Gans, Gans. You related to Harry Gans? She says, my uncle. Perry says, Harry gave me my first contribution, $25 when I first ran for office. What can I do for you? <laughs> he picks up the phone. He gets her the money to distribute Sesame Street. So Perry Goldwater, conservative Republican, is the father of Big Bird. <laughs> I told this at a PBS meeting. They thought I was making the story up. This is absolutely the guy's honest truth. That is unbelievable. That is unbelievable. And then, obviously, uh, I'll just note that PBS, you were instrumental. I know that you were talking about a moment ago the the predecessor of PBS in, in Chicago, I think, is WTTW. But then 
that's in the sixties. You were involved there in the, in the seventies, you were on now PBS itself exists. You're on the board of governors there and chaired it for a few of those years. And then president of the Carnegie corporation, which was a major backer of PBS. So we, we owe you a lot for PBS. Now the next crazy, one of these stories has got to be with, you become the chairman of the board at the Rand corporation and you get a call about a guy named Daniel Ellsberg. <laughs> I was chairman of the Rand Corporation for two weeks. And it turns out the president of Rand calls me. This is at four in the morning. And he says, I think when you pick up the New York Times today, you're going to see that a copy of what we call the Pentagon Papers was stolen. And we think from Rand. And it turns out, of course, it was true. Daniel Ellsberg had worked at Rand, and um, the result was that the Rand security clearance was canceled by the Department of Defense. And I went to see the Deputy Secretary of Defense, whose name was David Packard, and I said, I bring you greetings from a fellow Rand trustee. He said, who's that? I said, it's a guy named Bill Hewlett. <laughs> Packard. Yeah, right. <laughs> he says, Bill, I trust you, Rand? I said, yes. He said, how is Bill? I said, not so good, because you just took away his security clearance. <laughs> so the Secretary of Defense looks at me, and he said, um, it wasn't the Department of Defense that did that. It was President of the United States. Because it had been so, embarrassing, yeah. And he gave me a couple of days to work this out. Because I told him I was going to have a press conference and announce that we got Ellsberg from you. He came from the Department of Defense with a top secret security clearance. <laughs> he said, calm down, keep your shirt on. <laughs> and I said, well, I said that at the most you got a day or so. Well, within a day, we had our security clearance back. Amazing, amazing. So the next of these crazy things is is the presidential debates, which we had started to talk about earlier. You're there at the at the inception of the idea, even with Stevenson. You're there after Kennedy gets elected through the debates. And as best I can tell, you have had some role in every presidential and vice presidential debate ever uh, since then. Recently as yesterday. <laughs> announced the moderators of the 2020 debates. I'm still on the debate commission. Been involved with the League of Women Voters with every debate. Right, and and co-chaired the presidential debates and were the vice chair of the Commission on Presidential Debates. Just, um, you've written a book about this, so I know that I to ask you to summarize this is, is unfair, but just when you became involved with this, could you have ever imagined what a life it would take on that you would be involved for all these years. And, uh, and I guess just, you know, why are these still so important? It's the only time when you have major candidates uh, together face to face where they don't control the questions where you don't have a crowd screaming where you don't have any commercials where the country can concentrate on seeing who are you? What do you believe? What kind of character do you have? What kind of personality do you have? Can we trust you? This is the only time we can do that. And that's through the gift of 
radio and television. Absolutely. It's amazing. And actually, this this cycle of debates might address the only issue that I've ever had about the debates for whatever my two cents are worth, which is I don't feel the audience adds anything. So now I don't think you'll probably be able to have an audience during the pandemic, right? We shouldn't be confused with the primary debates, which are by the broadcasters where they have an audience and where they feature their own broadcast people. Uh, we're independent. We audience cannot say a word. And there are no commercials. We don't pay for the time. It's a public service. Honest to God, public service in 2020. Absolutely. Back in 88, you're back at your law firm, which is one of the great law firms in the country, certainly. Uh, and you, I believe, get a call from your one of your three daughters, who is now and maybe, I guess, already at that point. I don't know. She, she is now the dean of Harvard Law School. She left. And she's still teaching, right? Yeah. She's been there 40 plus years. Wow. So this is 1988, and I'll, I'll ask you to just take the story from there. I've got three daughters. They're all lawyers. They're all doing great good in the world, all three. This one, Martha, uh, called me up. She said, I've got a student at Harvard Law School, and he's only finished his first year. And I know you don't hire first year summer interns, but this kid is so extraordinary, you should take a look at him. I said, what's his name? She said, Barack Obama. I said, you have to spell that one for me. So she spells <laughs> it. And I call our hiring partner and I tell him he starts to laugh. I said, what are you laughing about? It's not funny. He said, we've hired him already. He was in here yesterday for an interview. We've hired him. He's coming here. So I called Martha back. I said, you're a day too late. He's already been hired. So Barack came and we put a young woman who was in the office working for us named Michelle Robinson as his supervisor. Well, who knew what was going to happen? In fact, my wife and I went to the movies one night and who do we run into but Barack and Michelle out on their First date. <laughs> Do the right thing, right? They were, that was. That was. <laughs> well, we became friends we, we, and kept in close touch with We used to take him out. And later we got very involved with his campaigns. One thing led to another. And I wrote a piece for the Chicago Tribune urging him to run for president. Uh, and he turned out to be a great president and great examples, I hope. <laughs> Uh, for the future and for our country. Absolutely. Often uh, compared to President Kennedy, which is, uh, I wonder if you, maybe you He reminded me much of President Kennedy. Yeah. Well, here's my last question is, is basically just as you sit here almost 60 years after the vast wasteland speech, uh, almost exact, I guess now uh, 60 years ago, you were in that position as FCC chair what do you make of what has happened with the FCC, with TV? And I just want to mention before you answer this question, a few things that are often discussed. I mean, we're at a, we're living in a time when gun violence is uh, a huge issue in our country. There's a question, you know, there's debates about, is that because of things people see on the screen that they then go and emulate in real life? We're also obviously living at a time of great polarization when there's 
not only political polarization, but just so many channels that nobody's watching the same thing in any great numbers like they used to. So people wonder what the effects of that are, what the effects of something like Fox News is, which, you know, I don't know what your position on this is, but there's a lot of people who feel it's essentially state TV. It's become state news. And then certainly the final thing I'll mention before I leave it to you to to answer this is just a president unlike any other that we've had before. And I know that you have written about this back in October, as you know, as early as October 2017, you had an op-ed in the Washington Post calling on the then five living former presidents to try to intervene here because, you know, this was the the things that you've always stood for, um, integrity, decency, class, these were not, these were no longer evident in the Oval Office. And I don't think things have gotten better since October 2017, but again, not looking to put words in your mouth. So I guess, bottom line, just 60 years later, the FCC, TV, things in the White House, how would you say they have evolved or devolved since then? What we tried to do was to expand choice, to give the viewer more than two and a half networks we certainly succeeded in that. We've expanded choice. At the same time, I think we, as a civilization, pay a great price for that. We now don't agree on what the facts are. Pat Moynihan, Senator Moynihan, once said, this is a free country. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but nobody's entitled to their own facts. We now seem to have a country, including people who are broadcasters and cable people and so on, who say we can have alternative facts. The Rand Corporation, which I was involved with, is running a very serious and I regard existential research project right now called Truth Decay. Truth Decay where people make up their own facts, and we cannot allow that to happen. We have to get back to the point where we agree on this is true or this is not true. And I think we're going through a very bad period of American life when that is under contention. Well, hopefully people are listening who will who will heed your advice, and I know a lot of other a lot of people are are listening and saying to themselves, how is it possible that one man has had such an incredible uh, life touching on so many different areas of our country's history? And so I just really want to thank you for taking the time and and for being so generous with your recollections. It's uh, I, I, I think that uh, it's a great role model for for people to aspire to emulate. So thank you so much. Scott, let me just say that the most important thing I've done is to have a loving, happy marriage for more than 71 years, raise three daughters uh, who are just enormous contributors to making this a better world, to have three grandchildren who are devoted to public service and doing good. So that's been my contribution. Well. Thank you for it all, and uh, and and thank you as well. I should say to one of your daughters, who I'm lucky to know a little bit, Nell, who is in the world of movies like me as well. Uh, she is the the person that connected us, and I'm so grateful to her and to you. And uh, 
and just stay well and and thank you again. Scott, it's been a privilege to be with you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.